turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 18, 21. We're continuing our way through the text. We're working our way through Matthew chapter 18. And there's been a couple of things. The whole chapter stands and falls together as a singular whole. Jesus talks about in the first part of the chapter how we have to be ruthless with dealing with sin in our own lives. And, and he says if you knowingly or, or willingly or flagrantly tempt your brother or your sister, it would be better if you were flung into an ocean with a, a millstone hung around your neck. And, and if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, you should chop it off, cut it off, gouge it out. It'd be better to enter into heaven with no eye, no hand, no foot than to go to hell with all your hands and feet. And the point of all of that is that when it comes to dealing with sin in our own lives, we're to be utterly ruthless. So the first part of that chapter talks about ruthless in dealing with sin in our own lives, to do whatever it takes to not sin. Second part, it goes into a discussion on uh, the lost sheep. You have 100 sheep in a field and the one gets away, so you'll leave the 99 and you'll go after the one. So the teaching there is that we're to be relentless in our efforts to gather the people of God together. So ruthless with sin in our lives, relentless when it, go, when it comes to gathering our brothers and sisters together with the Lord. And then we came to this last section we spent the last two weeks talking about in which when it comes to the church, we're to be reverent of the church. If, if there's a person in the church who is hurting the church, who is hurting someone within the church, and they refuse to repent, then we are called as a church to remove that person from the assembly. So ruthless with regards to sin in our own life, relentless in our pursuit of others, and reverent with regards to what happens in the church. All of that, the whole chapter, has to be understood by what comes next. Really, uh, Matthew 18, 21 to 35, this forms the undergirding of the whole chapter. So look with me in Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared, sorry, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, basically begging him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And it's the exact same thing that this guy said to the Lord. Have patience with me, and I will pay you what you owe. Verse 30, just so you know, it's in the present active indicative. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing ver verb. Essentially, verse 30, he continued to refuse. He continued to choose to will not to grant him forgiveness. So, so the idea is there that he was begging him, please forgive. No, please forgive. No, please forgive. No, he just kept on refusing. So verse 30, he refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you. Lord, I love you. I love you so much, Father. Thank you. As I read this passage, I can't but help just take this moment reflecting on all that you have rescued me from, the enormous debt which I could never pay. Father, thank you for paying it for me. I know that my salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. And so as we reflect during this particular holiday season on the birth of the glorious one, stepping down, taking on human flesh, 
just so he could suffer and die. Stepping from the throne of heaven to the mud and dirt of earth for one real explicit purpose, to be tortured and crucified for me. I say thank you. Thank you a thousand times over. Lord, on behalf of everyone gathered here today, we, your people, we say to you, thank you. Lord, as we come to this text this morning, I pray your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to see whether or not there are any among us today who are showing ourselves unworthy of your precious gift by holding on to bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. Lord, we pray your spirit would open our eyes to see whether or not this is true for any of us in here today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me, Fraulein? She sat in the basement of this church in Munich hearing this individual ask her for forgiveness, and she struggled with whether or not she could forgive him. It's Germany. It's Munich, 1947. And Corrie ten Boom has specifically traveled throughout the country of Germany, speaking at various churches, specifically on the message of forgiveness, because that's what they most needed to hear in 1947, all throughout that bombed-out, desolate, God-wrought destruction on their country. They needed to hear the message of forgiveness. And she had been preaching on forgiveness. She had been sharing this message on forgiveness when, in the midst of the fellowship hall at this tiny little church, it's in the basement in Munich, Germany, a short, balding, slightly overweight man in a brown coat approached her, but she didn't see a balding man in an, over, an overweight, balding man in a brown coat. She, in that moment, had a flashback. She saw instead the blue-gray uniform, the skull and the crossbones of the Nazi SS. This wasn't just an ordinary man singing in a church service. This had been her guard at Ravenbrook Concentration Camp. And in that moment, the basement and the pews and the, the soft glow of candles left, and she was once again back in the sorting facility, standing there naked with her sister, with this pitiful pile of clothes in the middle of the room, and this very guard walking around with the leather whip flopping from his belt. He had done unspeakable things to her and her sister. And her sister had died in that camp. And now that same guard was sitting there asking her for forgiveness. Corrie ten Boom worked with a number of individuals in the years following World War II, victims of the Holocaust, and other individuals who had just suffered horrific atrocities at the hands of the Nazis. And she offered this interesting statement. She said, those who could forgive and move on went on to leave, lead, live and lead productive lives. Those who could not forgive became spiritual and emotional invalids. What we're talking about today is important because if we struggle to forgive, not only will it hold us back spiritually and emotionally, but as the text makes clear to us today, you cannot hold on to unforgiveness and also have fellowship with the Father. And I think that the warning of this text today goes a little deeper. If we hold on to unforgiveness, there is a possibility that we ourselves might never have actually tasted or known the forgiveness of salvation. It's a gospel issue. Look with me, Matthew 18. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. It starts off, it sounds like a rather innocuous question, but it's anything but innocuous. Peter, they've had this whole teaching on church discipline and being ruthless with sin and, and this whole section on which Jesus has said, you know, uh, it would be better for you to commit suicide than to sin against your brother. And hearing all of that, Peter asks the question to Jesus. He says, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Uh, would seven be a good number? Now, you and I are hearing that from 21st century ears, and we're like, seven, 
come on, man, you can do better than that. But understand, this is first century Palestine. He is a Jew. Anybody here recall in uh, middle school or elementary school going out to the playground at recess and they strike up a rousing game of kickball or soccer and they do what is referred to as a schoolyard pick? Your team captain, your team captain. Okay, I pick you. Okay, I pick you. Okay, I pick you. How many of you, be honest, how many of you got picked last? It stinks, right? <laughs> now, it's a blessing in disguise, okay? It's not all bad. The kid that got picked first, wow, he's picked first. He knows he's awesome, right? There's a danger in that called pride, called arrogance. Now, the Jews have had a thousand-year history of the God of Israel saying, you're my chosen people. I pick you first, okay? And that, there's, a, there's an amazing promise there that God is fulfilling with regards to Abraham but you get to these people and they spend a thousand years hearing that, it's going to do things to you, right? The Jews are horrifically racist. They are convinced that they're awesome. They've been picked first and everybody else is inferior. They are at the same time not in control of their property, but the Romans are running the show. So they're ticked off about that. And being a people that also celebrates genealogical lineage, not only is it important that you're a Jew, but which family, which tribe, which clan do you come from, that is also significant. So it's like double reinforced, okay? I'm awesome because I'm a Jew, and I'm even more awesome because I'm from the tribe of Judah. What do you got? Oh, I'm from Benjamin. That's kind of the mentality that's going on in, with these people. So knowing that God loves you, knowing that God has chosen you, growing up in a culture that celebrates that, that emphasizes that, you think you might get a little ticked off at every slight and every offense that you might encounter? Absolutely. And so the question becomes, because we know that God is a loving and forgiving God, how many times do we have to forgive people who sin against us? The rabbis pulled this verse out of Amos, in which it says, not for three sins, yet for four will I utter destruction. And then he lists a whole bunch of nations that have sinned against Israel. God makes this statement in Amos, not for three, but for four, I will destroy you and you and you and you. Now, if you understand that verse in context, God has a slightly different point he's trying to make. But the rabbis grabbed that verse and they said, okay, so God will let three sins go, but on the fourth one, man, it's game on. We can whack him at that point. At four, no more. So they taught this. And you will actually, I thought for fun, I would take a survey of all of the rabbinic literature dating back to the first century and just kind of read on this. And it was shocking to me because they have way more than you could ever read. I mean, I'm talking like two, 300 pages worth of stuff written by first century rabbis on what constitutes a sin and exactly how you know when you hit three and when you know you can never, ha you don't have to feel obligated to forgive ever again. 250 pages on this stuff. I was like, there's no way I'm going to read all that this week. That's shocking to me. So when Peter says to Jesus, Lord, now three times is the number, okay? When Peter says to Jesus, seven? Understand, Peter's looking for a pat on the head and for Jesus to be like, good boy, seven, that's awesome. Yeah, you're going above and beyond the call there. Way to go. Peter is looking for a attaboy. And Jesus's response is shocking. To understand Jesus's response, you need to know that we're dealing with Hebrew numerology. Do I have to forgive seven times? Now, the way that Peter says that, he's meaning a literal seven, but he chooses the number seven because the number seven has significance. The number seven is the number of divine perfection. It's God's number, okay? And so in Hebrew numerology, the number seven, it not only is like, you know, prime number and all that stuff, but it actually represents God, okay? So it's speaking to God's character. So seven times, and Jesus' response is not seven times. That's a good start, but 70 times seven, which is 490. And if you don't understand that this is Hebrew numerology, you might take it a little too literally where you're thinking that what Jesus is saying is you got to keep track for 490. And once you get to 491, okay, then you cannot forgive anymore. Now, I wouldn't put it past this. I think there are probably some people out there that could count to 490 and, and keep track, okay? That's not what Jesus is saying. Peter starts off with a Hebrew number for seven, and Jesus just cranks it right up. He says, not just seven times, 
but 70 times 7, which is the number for God, the number for perfection, for completeness, times the number for God, the number for completion and perfection, completeness. So when we talk about God, God is love. God is holy. We're talking about attributes, characteristics of God that are a part of his personality. God isn't just loving nine times out of ten. God isn't just holy seven times out of twelve. I mean, he is always holy. It's a part of his character. He never messes up. So when Jesus says to Peter, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you must always forgive. It must become a part of your character so that every instance in your life in which you are tempted not to forgive, you must forgive, which is totally devastating, completely shocking to these guys. There's a couple of ways that they probably would have responded. You have the look of disgust. You have the look of surprise and shock. Like, oh, who knows? The Bible doesn't say. It goes, in fact, if you look at the text, it goes from verse 22 to verse 23. He makes a statement, I don't say to you seven, time, seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he begins to tell a parable. Gather around, boys and girls, it's story time. Jesus, and I, I know this is what's happening because it happens sometimes to me. You make a statement in the course of the sermon and half the room is like, what? And then you feel the need as a, as a public speaker to kind of break it down. Okay, some of you aren't with me. Let me kind of elaborate. Jesus makes a statement to Peter in a culture which would have been horrified by this. You don't just forgive seven times or three times as the case may be. This needs to be a way of life for you. What? So he's just going to roll on with a story. He's going to take 14 verses to drive home why this has to be true for us. He starts off, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. Now, this is a parable, and it's a comparison, which means that the kingdom of heaven, which is ruled by God in heaven, the father of the universe, the kingdom of heaven can be compared, that is, we can make a direct comparison between what is true about the kingdom of heaven and the story that Jesus is about to tell. It can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts. So you have this wealthy king, and he says, hey, you know what? It's time to review my investment portfolio. Let's break out the books. Let's see what's going on. Let's start with the big investments, which for the first servant, you're hoping he starts with the small investments. Maybe he'll get tired before he gets to you because you got the biggest debt on the books. Calls in the first servant, and they brought him to him, and it says he owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you don't really know what that means, so I'm going to explain it to you. Uh, the earliest commentaries I read on this put the figure at like 750 million. I've adjusted for inflation. I've calculated based upon a minimum wage, which is $10.50, and a standard working day here in Canada, which is about eight and a half hours on average for most Canadians. And what we're talking about here, based on inflation, all these numbers, I did all this calculation so you wouldn't have to. This man owes $6.5 billion with a B. $6.5 billion. Okay, now I, I know some of us in this room are wealthier than others of us in this room. But I don't care how rich you are. I don't care if you're Donald Trump. Okay? Don't care if you're Bill Gates. I don't care if you're the king of Saudi Arabia. 6.5 billion, you're going to notice that. It's going to show up. Like you're going to say, oh, hmm, where did that 6.5... I mean, maybe if you're the American government, it's not a big deal. But for everybody else, it matters, okay? This is a figure you're going to notice. You owe me $6.5 billion. Let's have it. Verse 25. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And you understand, he's not getting $6.5 billion for this man and his wife and his kids and their house and their car and all the stuff that they own. He's not getting anywhere near the amount that's owed to him. He's trying to get back as much of it as he can, which is peanuts. He's not getting hardly any of it back. Man says to him, I can't pay. He says, Okay, you guys are going to become slaves now. 
and I'm confiscating your house, your car, all your family heirlooms, all that's going to auction. So he begs him. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, notice this, out of pity for the man, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He forgives it. The king says, tell you what, your truck is paid, your mortgage is done, uh, your student loan gone, uh, all that money I entrusted to you to invest wisely on my behalf, even though this is an epic failure and you have nothing to show for it at this point, I will let it all be good. Does that sound good? How many of you have mortgages? Most all of us? Okay. How many of you would like the king to be like, eh, don't worry about it? Sweet, right? How many of you have car payments? Most of us. How many of you are still paying off that student loan? Some of us. Well, many of us. You want that to be forgiven? King says, it's all good. Now, this man has just been forgiven $6.5 billion. I don't know about you. I'm going home to the wife, and I'm saying, guess what? Let's have some champagne. Let's go out to dinner tonight. I'm celebrating. His response is, awesome, $6.5 billion windfall. This guy owes me money. He goes out, he finds servant number two. Mind you, this isn't his servant. This is a fellow servant. These are peers. This is a guy on his level. He goes out, says, verse 28, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. The first guy owes 10,000 talents, which is 6.5 billion. You want to know what 100 denarii is? It's about $1,000. 1,000. Now, what's laughable is the king says, I'm going to sell you and try and get some of my money back. He's not selling the guy for $6.5 billion. The guy says, be patient. I'll pay it. <laughs> yeah, right. How many of you are honestly going to make $6.5 billion over the course of your working life? Nobody. Okay, nobody is going to be making that much money. And this guy isn't going to be making that much money either. When he says, have patience, I'll pay it back, it's a ludicrous proposition. When he chokes his fellow servant, he's like, give me my money. The guy's like, I owe you 1000 bucks. I'll pay you back. Now, how many of you could pay back 1000 bucks? Most of us in this room. The first guy, he's going for broke. Man, I'll pay it, but it's a lie and everybody knows it. The second guy, he's like, I can pay you $1,000. It's a realistic proposition. But he has no pity. He has no mercy. And the text is explicitly clear. He's choking this guy. Pay me my money. Pay me my money. And the guy's like, I'll pay you. I can make it up to you. And he actually can. And he says, nah, I'm just going to throw you in jail where you can't work, where you can't make money, and I'm going to stick you in there until I get paid. How's the man supposed to pay him back from jail? Well, he's not going to. It's punitive. It's vengeful. This is spite. This is hatred. He has been given $6.5 billion. And even though he is legitimately owed 1000 bucks, just in a pure rage, he won't allow that person to come up with some sort of a payment plan. The king finds out. Verse 32, his master summoned him, and he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Look at this. As I had mercy on you. Now, this is the gospel. In a nutshell, a number of years ago, I was witnessing to a person, me and a fellow Christian went out witnessing, and I said, this is the gospel in a nutshell. You have bought a house you can't afford. You have an outrageous mortgage, and the debt collectors have come to collect, and you will never be able to pay it because you have bitten off more than you can chew. That's what sin is. Every offense, everything we do wrong, however small or trivial it seems in our eyes, it has infinite implications because it offends and wrongs an infinitely holy God. Little white lie 
might as well be as bad as Hitler because it's all the same from the Father's perspective. God says, I will forgive you all of that. Every sin you've ever committed, every grievance you've ever been a part of, every time you've wronged someone, every time you've wronged him, the Father in heaven says, I tell you what, I have pity on you, I love you, I care for you, I will pay it off for you. The gospel comes to us free. Salvation is free, but it is not cheap. And this parable upholds that. We get forgiven at the king's expense. His statement to the servant is, I forgave you that huge debt, and should not you have had mercy as I had mercy? The teaching here, what Jesus is saying is that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, we know that the kingdom of heaven is made up of the king and the king's people, Christians. And he tells this parable about a servant who was a part of his kingdom but did not forgive, even though he had been forgiven. And that servant is taken away so that the merciful, forgiving servants remain and the unforgiving servants do not remain. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the implication is clear. If you have been forgiven by the Father, an enormous debt that you could never hope to pay, ought you not also to forgive the very small, very minor grievances and offenses that we often inflict on each other? Jesus drives it home even further. Verse 34, his ma- his, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So as Christians, we're called to forgive, recognizing that we've been forgiven. The forgiveness which Jesus gives to us through what he does on the cross provides the foundation, the basis, and the support for our ability to forgive other people. If you're walking out of something debt-free, you've been given $6.5 billion, you think you can afford to overlook $1,000? You bet you you can, because you know no matter how you crunch the number on that $1,000 with interest over a lifetime, it will never come anywhere close to $6.5 billion. We're talking about a difference of six point four nine 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 billion dollars, okay? I hope, I'm not sure if I got every nine there, but I think I did. We're talking about an enormous difference, an enormous difference. You can afford to let go of the small debt having been forgiven, the big debt, and what's more is the gospel seems to imply that if you truly recognize the forgiveness that Jesus has given you, if you can come to terms knowing how great your sin is and how merciful and how gracious your king is in dying for you on the cross, if you can actually taste that, then there should be a desire to cherish and practice forgiveness amongst each other. Now, you're sitting here today, and I, if you're like me, you're probably a little freaked out. Because if we're going to be, I mean, let's just lay it on the table. If we're going to be pr- brutally honest with ourselves, if we're going to pause for a second, most of us, we know there's somebody in our life that we're holding something against. And, and so we come to this text today, and Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you don't get forgiven. If you don't forgive, you're going to jail, which, you know, talking about salvation here. And so you hear that and you're like, I mean, if you're like me, you're thinking of names of people who've upset you, who've wronged you, who've done things against you. I'm sure names have come up in the past of people, and it's not to say that what they did wasn't minor. I mean, some of us may have endured significant grievances. And we've just said, forget those people. Don't even have anything to do with them. We've written them off. Well, That's a problem because Jesus didn't write us off. 
And his expectation is that we won't write each other off. Say, okay, well, this is getting really intense, so what is forgiveness? What does it look like? Number one, I'm going to tell you what forgiveness is not, and then I'm going to tell you what it is. Number one, forgiveness does not mean that the situation is fixed. Okay? Forgiveness can exist in an environment in which the circumstances are less than ideal for happy interaction. What do you mean? In the book of Genesis, chapter 6, God is about to send a flood on the earth. He's about to wipe the earth off the map. He calls Noah to begin to build an ark. There's an interesting expression there. It says it grieved. It depends on the translation you're working with, but a number of different ways you can translate this Hebrew verb. It grieved God. It made God sad that he had created man. Another translation, it repented God's heart that he had made man. Okay, so God is sitting here looking at the sinfulness and the wickedness on the earth, and it's broken, and it's totally, totally destroyed. I mean, sin has run rampant, and God is about to bring judgment on the earth. He's about to wipe it, off with a, wipe it out with a flood. And it makes this statement, he's regretting what's going on. The circumstances aren't fixed, and God is heartbroken. So number one, God obviously had mercy. And he extended forgiveness to a small group. Forgiveness can exist in less than ideal circumstances. Second thing is, forgiveness does not necessarily mean that you feel emotionally happy with the person you're forgiven. Those are the two biggest misconceptions that are going on here. Number one, uh, if I'm going to forgive, everything has to be hunky-dory, the situation has to be totally resolved, and I, we can just put a nice, beautiful red bow tie on it, and there will never be any problems ever again. When that happens, then I can forgive. Wrong. That's not what the scripture says. Problem number two is that you have to like the person. You have to feel warm, fuzzy, tingly, happy thoughts in your heart when you look at this person. And if, if you don't feel that way, then you haven't forgiven. That's not a biblical definition of forgiveness either. I'll put it to you like this. In Samuel, David sins against God and against Uriah. He sleeps with Bathsheba, has an affair. Then she gets pregnant. In order to cover it up, he murders her husband, Uriah. Bathsheba, David, get married. Nobody found out, except God knows, which is all that really matters. God sends a prophet. Nathan says, hey, uh, you, uh, you did this. Oh, man, blessed, caught red-handed. Interesting expression. David pleads. He says, I have sinned. Forgive me. And this is what the Lord said through the prophet Nathan. In verse 13 in Samuel, it says, I have sinned against the Lord. He's asking for forgiveness. And Nathan responds, this is what God says to the prophet Nathan, the Lord has also taken away your sin. He's forgiven it. You shall not die. Cool. So we all live happily ever after. No, no. Think God's still upset over the fact that Uriah was killed? It hurt God. There's going to be punishment. Because by this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the name of the Lord. The child that is to be born to you shall surely die. He goes on. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from within your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes and I will give them to your companion and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it secretly, but this thing will happen to you before all Israel under the sun. The situation isn't fixed. There will be consequences. God forgives, but he's still upset. Number one, you can forgive in which the circumstances are not right, still a very broken situation. Number two, forgiveness does not require that you feel happy, warm, fuzzy thoughts. What does it mean to forgive? I want you to go with me to John chapter 4. Best verse in the whole Bible on forgiveness comes in John chapter 4. I think it's verse 22. Let me get over there really quick. Flip with me to John 4, 22. Okay, it's actually verse 28, but we can start in verse 22. 
Jesus and the woman at the well are talking. He's trying to tell her, you know, basically, I'll just paraphrase, I'm Jesus. And uh, she's, she's like, ah, no, we're going to worship over here. And he's like, no, no, you need to worship the Father and Spirit and truth. And she's not having any of that business. So he says, okay, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. And then he nails her. He's like, you have five husbands. He's like, oh. She's struck by that, right? So um, he makes a statement, verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, so the woman, verse 28, greatest verse in the whole Bible on forgiveness. This is it right here in a nutshell. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Some of you are sitting there thinking, what? I'm not seeing it. The word for forgive is used in this verse. Same word you see over in Matthew chapter 18. Literally, if you're going to read this verse literally, verse 28, the woman forgave her water pot there and ran to the town to go tell all her friends about Jesus. She forgives her water pot. The syntactical grammatical meaning of this word for forgive is to unload, to uncarry, to unburden yourself, to just leave it behind. The verse is saying that she just forgave it, got rid of it. Now, is that to say that the water pot has no significance? No, no, no. And we're going to get all these weird metaphysical discussions that have no bearing on the sermon today, okay? The point is simply this. When we say, biblically, that we're going to forgive someone, we are in a very real sense. I mean, we can put this in terms of an economic illustration. And I've said this to you before. It's what the king is doing in Matthew 18. If I have a a fence and a truck, and my neighbor comes over to me and he says, can I borrow your truck to go move leaves? And I say, yeah, sure, here's the keys of the truck. And he jumps in the truck and he throws it in reverse and then floors it in reverse right into my fence, destroys my fence, demolishes my gate. There's a real cost there. Uh, To repair that gate and fence, I'm going to have to fork out some money. Now, I can say to my friend, you destroyed my fence and gate. It'll be $6.5 billion, okay? Now, of course, we don't say that. Realistically, you know, I don't know, 500000 bucks maybe to fix the fence. And they probably will pay it. But how many of us treat them as though they just took $6.5 billion? We can agree to restore that fence a number of different ways. He can pay for it. We could, I guess, agree to pay 50-50s. I don't know why you would do that, but you could say, I'll pay half of it, and you pay half of it. And for some of us, that's what forgiveness looks like. Some of us will say, deep in my soul, I feel like this is 6.5 billion, and so I'm going to, you know, I'm only going to go halfway with you here. But true biblical forgiveness looks like if you've been wronged and there is a real consequence, there is a real cost to any wrong that we suffer. It actually costs us something. Real forgiveness means you let it go, you lay it down. I say, that's impossible. No, it's not. Not when you consider that God killed his own son to let you go. Then it's really easy. Now, I know that it's difficult to forgive. I know it. But if any of Matthew 18 is ever going to work, and if we're ever going to be together in the church as a happy family, every single person has to practice forgiveness. At its most basic level, when someone sins against you, it is a legitimate wrong. It offends God. It's a harm done to you, whether they've gossiped about you, whether they've slandered you, whether they've, God forbid, gotten involved in a car accident in your driveway. And I'm talking sometimes really significant things can happen. This last week in my study on forgiveness, I read about an account of a man 
who actually did loan his truck to a friend, a church member, to go move furniture. I have two daughters. I love them. This guy went out and jumped in the truck, threw it in a reverse. And the man who loaned the truck, his young daughter was playing in the driveway, riding on her tricycle behind the truck, and he backed it over her and killed her. These two men live together. They go to the same Sunday school class. To this day, they are best friends. You say, how could you ever do that? Only one way. Trust in God. I know that wrongs happen. I know that they hurt. I know that there are certain losses which are so severe and so significant that in the quiet of the night, when you are alone in your bedroom, you are thinking to yourself, there is no way I could let go of this. There is no way I could ever just lay this down. If you walk with the Lord, if you would pray to him, if you would ask him to work in your heart, even for something as tragic as that, you could. God's grace would enable you. And the teaching of this passage is that we will strive, even in something as tragic as that, we could forgive. We could forgive. Forgiveness, like I said, doesn't mean that you are instantly happy, warm fuzzies. Forgiveness isn't predicated on your emotional state of being. Forgiveness isn't predicated on the circumstances being fixed. Sometimes things can't be fixed. But what Jesus is saying here, the biblical meaning of the word is that you would lay it down. You would put it on the Father's hands. Thomas Watson was posed this question. I have been so severely wronged. I don't know that I can forgive. What does forgiveness look like? Thomas Watson answers in his book, Body of Divinity. When in doubt, always go to the Puritans. They've got good stuff. Forgiveness is when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. Forgiveness is when we will not do our enemies mischief, but we will wish well to them. Forgiveness is when we grieve with our enemies at their calamities. We pray for them. We seek reconciliation with them. And we show ourselves ready on all occasions to help them. I think it's a biblical definition of forgiveness because it's totally scriptural. For example, resisting thoughts of revenge, Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Forgiveness means that we don't seek to do them mischief. And again, I find that to be very biblical. 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See to it that no one repays one another evil for evil. Forgiveness means that when people have wronged us, even though they have wronged us, even though we feel the pain, even though it hurts, we still wish well for them. Luke 6.28. Bless those who curse you. Forgiveness means that when those who have wronged us experience calamities of their own, that we would grieve with them at what they suffer, just as we grieve with what we have suffered. Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Forgiveness means we pray for them. And we've already seen this in Matthew chapter 5. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Forgiveness means that we will, as much as we are able to, seek reconciliation with those who have wronged us. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, strive to be at peace with all men. And forgiveness means that we're always willing to help those who have wronged us. Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering, you shall surely return it to him. It's from a bygone age, okay? 
the commandment in the book of Exodus was if your enemy, if his cow gets out or his donkey wanders off and you see it and you're like, hey, that's my enemy's donkey, God commands you to take it back to your enemy, to help your enemy. So I find that to be a very biblical definition of forgiveness. You'll notice in all of that, there's a will that is being exercised. You will strive against thoughts of revenge. You will strive not to do your enemies mischief. You will strive to wish them well. You will strive to grieve at their calamities. You will will in your heart to pray for them. You will actually pray for them. You will seek, you will strive as much as possible to seek reconciliation with them. And on all occasions, you will, if you're going to honor the Lord, try to help them if they need it. That is biblical forgiveness. That's what the text says. Now, Jesus says that we're going to do all of that. Thomas Watson has laid it out for us beautifully. That's all biblical. And then Jesus kind of, you know, he ratchets it up just a little bit more. He says, you will forgive your enemies from the heart. That's impossible. If you've ever really been wronged, you know how hard that is. Yeah, I can be nice, I can be cordial, I can be civil, fine, I'll go help him move when it's moving day. But in the back of your mind, you know you still hold on to resentment. Jesus doesn't leave room for that. He says you've got to do it from the heart. And I've been asked this question in my office on multiple occasions. How do I do it from the heart? I can do it, but not from the heart. For some of us, I think that if we would just do what we know is right, even though we don't necessarily feel the emotion, we would be surprised to find that the Holy Spirit meets us in that moment to warm our heart, to unburden us from our anger and our resentment. If we would strive to forgive from the hand, I know God would meet us in the heart. In fact, I'm just going to make this comment. Sometimes people say to me, you know, I have a hard time uh, listening to your sermons. Not that you're a bad preacher. Of course, I'm a glorious preacher. But I just have a hard time sometimes hearing what you're saying. And that's followed by another statement. I have a hard time reading my Bible. I have a hard time just feeling motivated to go to church. I struggle with scripture memorization or my daily quiet time. And in effect, what people are saying to me is I'm struggling in my walk with the Father. And listen, there could be several reasons for why that is. Perhaps some of us are scheduling to do our quiet times at, say, I don't know, 3 in the morning when we couldn't possibly be awake enough to do a decent quiet time. But I'm convinced 99.9% of the time what it is Our struggle in our walk with the Father is because we are harboring unforgiveness in our heart. The text here makes it explicitly clear. No one walks with the Father if they're not striving to forgive from the heart. It looks like all of those things that I just mentioned to you But what it most most importantly means is this. When you see a person who has wronged you, your first thought is not the wrong that was done. Your first emotional response is not the cringe that happens. Your first thought, God forgave me. And how wonderful that was. Can't I also forgive this person? Can't I also bless this person the way that God in heaven has blessed me? See, this is the thing. For every conversation that starts off with, you remember that time you wronged me back in 1984? For every conversation that starts off that way, there is an opportunity to say, I put it down a long time ago. Why don't you and I go out for dinner? Tell me, how are your kids doing? What's going on with school? How is work? For every opportunity that there is to start a conversation with, remember that time back in 1984, 
if you have the opportunity for that, you also have the opportunity to say, hey, you're my brother. I love you. We're friends. Because this much is true. It took a dead son of God to make me right with the Father. And that dead son of God should be sufficient to make you and me right. And it should never require a second dead son of God to make us right. Because that's wicked. I think probably the most horrifying of all experiences would be to endure a Nazi concentration camp. To see your sister die at the hands of Nazi SS soldiers. And not only that, but to see her die slowly as a result of starvation and torture. Now, I can think of no person more justified in this world, aside from Jesus, than Corrie ten Boom. Now, she's preaching on forgiveness in Munich, in Germany, in 1947 to encounter a guard who walks up to her at the conclusion of her message and says, I was at Ravenbrook. I'm a Christian now. Will you forgive me? She didn't want to do it. She writes in her book, and I will close with this. I had to do it. The message that God forgives has this prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars were. Those who nursed their bitterness forever remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrifying as that. So I stood there with the coldness clutching at my heart. But forgiveness is an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. Whatever I'm feeling, you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that he had stretched out to me. And as I did it, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, and I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. My prayer for you Maybe the Lord's speaking to your heart this morning. Maybe you're thinking of somebody whom you have struggled to forgive. You do what you can, and you trust the Lord to meet you halfway. Let it go. Lay it down. And you will know the warmth of the Spirit and the joy of the Lord once again. Let's pray.